and welcome everyone to the Storybook Amusement Podcast. As always, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone had a great holiday season and Happy New Year to everyone out there. Well, today's episode, it's not really a new episode. This is an interview that was recorded back on November 28th, 2022. But the reason I'm posting it today is, well, by the time you're hearing this, I have a new video on my YouTube channel right now, and it's dedicated to the art of music in theme parks. That video is the first episode in a mini-series about theme park design for the five human senses. And the interview you're about to hear is on topic, so that's the reason why I wanted to post it today. It's an interview with Dick Hamilton, who's the composer for the soundtrack of Monster Mansion at Six Flags Over Georgia. Monster Mansion, as you may know, is a cult classic dark ride. It's a really, truly unique dark ride in the Six Flags chain. You've probably heard me yap about it a million times by now. It's a ride that has over a hundred original animatronics, and more importantly to today's topic, it has incredibly well-written music. I posted the audio of this interview on my YouTube channel earlier this year, but I just want to archive it here so it's a little bit more accessible. And one more quick note before I play the interview. This interview was recorded with a pretty simple setup, so the audio isn't ideal, but you know what? There's still some really great info from Dick Hamilton about not only his work composing the music for this ride, but also having hands-on experience implementing the music and audio into the actual attraction. So it's really interesting stuff. I would definitely stick around for it. But anyway, that's enough rambling for me. Without further ado, here's Dick Hamilton, composer of Monster Mansion, as recorded on November 28th, 2022. I'm just curious about how you got involved with this project in the first place and how that turned out. I started doing projects with Alvaro V, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know he had been with Disney, and he was responsible for a lot of the Disney World and Disneyland rides. Yeah, uh, Disneyland anyway, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and you know all this stuff, and uh, formed his own company. And I don't remember who it was that introduced us. Mm -hmm. But uh, I started doing the projects he was doing, and of course this was one of them, and. Uh, there were quite a few different projects for Six Flags Company, mm -hmm. uh, you know, parks in different places. So basically that was it. And this was like any of the others. Like uh, when the project started, I went out to his place out in, in uh, Valencia and uh, looked at the uh, the drawings and the, all the, the beginnings of stuff uh, for the whole, the whole layout, what stuff was going to look like and what it was going to do and what the plots were and, you know, and uh, we decided where there were going to be sounds and what kinds of sounds, uh, where it was music. Once I knew what the music was supposed to be, the first thing I could start doing was writing the music because of it, most of it, the music wasn't cued to stuff. The, the motions would be cued to the music. Yeah. And so I could start that before, you know, for, before getting timings on, on some of the other stuff that happened. So anyway, it's just, it, it grew from that. That was the way we always worked together. But when they get the characters put together, they might not have all of the outer pieces done, all the skin and the clothes and all of that. But once the mechanical parts of it were done, then uh, I was always able to go back and then I could take some measurements. If things were happening to cue to the music, I could do things like at the tempo the music was going to be, I could move the actuator that would actually move the solenoid that would make that particular thing, say one arm of the drummer. What? Okay. And depending on the mass of the moving piece, 
you know, they were all diff- they would all take a different length of time to go through their whatever their motion was, and then on on releasing the trigger to to go back to zero. So what I did was make a list of of all the different separate motions and how many at the tempo the thing was going, how many beats or fractions of a of a beat the actuator needed to be yeah. made for it to happen on a particular beat and then i could i could go back and basically choreograph the thing one of the things that was totally different about this was there was a lot of stuff that it was happening there's a, a kind of a dixieland band a country band and the crazy birds and the people that were involved that were in sync with the walk-in music or the ride-in music that starts at the beginning with the vocal on it. Mm-hmm. Back in those days, it was before digital, before most of it was digital. So all of the music for all of the things that were in sync with one another were all on the same eight-track uh, one-inch uh, playback. And uh, we had two tapes, uh, two, two playback machines. And the thing was, with, with animatronics up until that point, this was the first time we'd done anything where I really wanted to. I loved the characters and the guy that was playing a bass drum, which was his stomach, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. the one that was playing that that was his nose. And and I wanted him to, to actually be rhythmically correct for what you were hearing. That's when I found out they'd never actually done that before. That what they did on all the Disney stuff and all the earlier stuff was that they had a bunch of filters and they would run the music through a filter, say if it was something visible like the, like the arm beating a bass drum, they would try to find something that was regular enough so that if they filtered out all the other stuff, the sensor would respond to that frequency range, whatever the frequency range of the of the filter was. Yeah, I see. Uh, and that would, and so that it would affect just that, just the arm that was beating the bass drum. But it was really inexact. And, and if you've got a bass drum and you've also got bass, they're going to be crossing the same frequency range in some places. Right. And so then it starts to look crazy. So then they have to put in devices, like one thing they call a one-shot, which keeps it from responding more than once within a certain time period, however long you set the threshold on the, one, the, the one-shot thing. And then sometimes that stopped it from working when it should have. And, and so there's all this fine tuning and it takes days and days to get it to where it looks like anything makes sense. They accepted all of that. I asked the tech guys, what is the, the frequency range of the filters? Uh, how far apart to, do the tones need to be rejected by the next one down or the next one up? And basically what he told me in terms of percentage came out musically to be about a minor third. So uh, anyway, from the information I got from him, I realized if I if I gave them uh, sine waves, a different frequency for each one of the events that was going on, as long as they were a minor third apart, mm-hmm. their, their filter system could recognize one from the other. So then I went over and uh, and fine-tuned the thing that I had made in terms of the, the masses of the different things. Once I knew what I wanted them to be doing, they had wrote down a thing, basically a, a rhythm sheet that had there was nothing but the, the rhythm of the trigger pulses that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason for doing this was that there were nowhere near enough tracks to have a separate track for each for each trigger. We were hard put with all the different characters and voices and stuff out of 16 playback tracks. They have enough tracks for everything that was going on in, in the ride to begin with. This allowed me to to record all of the uh, the trigger pulses as sine waves separated by at least a, th- a minor third. And they all fit onto two tracks of the eight. So I had all the triggers for everything for the whole ride. 
on two different on two tracks on on the playback machine and they, they just flipped out i i, I mixed down the uh, i think it was the the dixie band was the first one I, I mixed down along with trigger tracks and took it out there and they put it on and they plugged everything in and turned it on and everything worked and everything was exactly in tempo and they just stood there with their jaws dropped and said i've never <laughs> seen anything like that before would have taken us weeks to get it to look like that so that was that was my contribution to the art in general, and that I have no idea if anybody else or any other company started using that technique. I mean, it wasn't a secret; they could have found out what it was if they'd wanted to. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's what I used from then on for all of the different things that I did for uh, Arvaro. That, I mean, really, that ca- caught me off guard when you said you did a little bit of work with the animatronics because I just thought it'd be more of a hands-off kind of a deal. You're, you compose yeah. the music and you send it off to them and that's that? That's the way it would have been, except that then I found out it wasn't it wasn't going to be what I was envisioning in my head, you know? Yeah. Seeing the way this living cartoon was working because that's what it was supposed to look like. I mean, that attention to detail is great because sometimes in cartoons you'll see like the drummer is playing a completely different beat than what you hear or someone's playing a saxophone in their hands in the wrong spot and like all these things. There, there are inconsistencies if you know what you're looking for and stuff. I mean, they get by with it, but it's really nice to have that attention to detail that I never knew about before. So that's, that's incredible. Those are the kind of the things you just described are the things that drive us nuts, musicians, if we go to a movie. There have been a few movies about musicians where the actors actually bothered to learn the mechanics of the instrument they were supposed to be playing to the extent that I could look at them and believe that they were playing it. It's the difference between what you just described and what they could have done, which is what these other people did. And I wanted the ride to come off that way so that once people got into it and that that determined the layout of everything in terms of the playback of what was going to be on what reel and where, because as the ride progresses, as you come in, you, you hear the entrance music with a vocal on it. And then as you get a little farther away from the entrance, uh, in front of you, you hear the Dixieland group, but they're playing the same thing in there, and it's exactly at the same time. It's, it's in sync, yeah. and you go past that, and then you, you hear the country group, and they're playing the same thing in country style, and it's also in sync. It was an interesting project recording that stuff uh, back in the day. <laughs> That's one of the questions I wanted to get into. Um, I wanted to talk about your inspiration, but yeah, recording, I heard your daughter sung the lyrics. Is that true? And yeah, who was on that track? It must- and my son, and one, and one of our nieces, okay, and my wife, who can, who also, she was a, a great studio singer, and then she could sound like a kid. Particularly, she was singing with the kids. Yeah, that was family. Cool. Are you on that track too? Oh yeah, I'm one of the crazy birds. And. Uh, you know, there are these statements between the, the kid singers and then the, the grumpy whatever they are singing nonsense, and I'm one of the nonsense singers. <laughs> cool. This project sounds a little more collaborative than I would have expected, honestly. We did a lot of stuff that was very collaborative because Alvaro was that kind of guy, and he would come up with ideas, and he surrounded himself with people who were geniuses at what they did, the mechanical guys, the, I mean, just... To go into that shop and look at the, the skeletons of these things and the, the beautiful craftsmanship and, you know, in stainless and making all of their own solenoids and, and uh, all of the stuff. You couldn't go anywhere and buy something of that quality. Yeah. He just instilled that in everybody. And, and if anybody got an idea that applied to some part of it other than what they were doing, he was the first one who wanted to know about it. 
and, and get it in there and get make it work. So with that, did he give you, or Big Albertino or any of these guys, did they give you a creative vision of, hey, we want it to be a Dixie band, we want it to be this band, or that you just kind of, you see what's going on, they tell you the story, and you're like, I hear a melody right now, I know what instruments to use. How does that come together? Yeah. I don't think anybody ever said Dixie band, but, but with the character playing his nose, the first thing I thought of, you know, was a, a clarinet and the way it would sound. And particularly a Dixie band is good because all the instruments are playing all the time in the ensembles. So, mm-hmm. so it makes sense for as much motion to be happening as possible. Oh, then that was another thing too. With all this stuff, I was, I was happy that on, on my side of the argument, which had been an argument before technically there were not enough tracks to do what they would like to have done which is stay with uh like the dixie band to have each one of the instruments on a separate track so that there would be a speaker by you know hidden someplace within or or right near each one of the things and it would come out and i argued against that vehemently because then i would not have had a chance to do the mix whoever was in there messing with knobs could change the mix at any old time you know uh oh let's turn this one up a little bit the thing was with all the with all the different things going on there's no way uh, that they were going to install enough machines and there was no way to make to make them run in sync in any more tracks than was on any one single machine anyway so it's just i said let this is what i want to do i want you to install really nice pair of stereo speakers one on each side of the set and and give me you know drawings with with measurements as to where each one is going to be and i'll do a stereo mix and put that sound in that spot so that anybody who's in in front of the the display will hear it coming from that particular place but then the whole thing will be on two tracks and it'll be mixed nobody can mess with it Uh, they can turn it up and down but equally you know and you'll hear it all coming from there and they were kind of doubtful but anyway the the first the first mix that I did when they had the, the whole set of that particular band, again, I think it was the Dixie band that set up. We played it back and everybody was just grinning because they, they heard the clarinet coming from where the clarinet thing was and they heard the banjo, you know, from where it was. And that. so anyway, we settled that. And so all the stuff that I did for them, I was able to mix and put on a stereo pair uh, according to, to where their setup was. Oftentimes, I didn't do the final mix until pretty late in the game because they were still in the middle of the setup. And sometimes the things they planned to do when they got to the actual spot they were putting it, there had to be some changes made of some kind. Mm-hmm. And th- so, that kind of thing is something that really makes a difference too. Uh, that directional kind of audio that you're talking about. It's, oh, yeah. It's one of those things kind of like the, the bass drum hitting right on beat and not going crazy or a little bit off beat or something. It's something that won't pull you out of the moment and kind of everything's consistent and it flows and it, it just nothing's distracting you in that kind of way. That's it. It's just like reading science fiction, suspension of disbelief. That was the whole business we were in with those things. Yeah, you guys do a great job with it. Uh, a lot of people have a ton of memories with this stuff. So absolutely. Um, well, that ride has been there forever. That's, that's probably the longest one that I've ever been involved with that I know of. And the only reason I know about it is because they asked if they could have a new audio master after the first 20 years. <laughs> so I made them a new one and sent it off. Um, was that during the Monster Mansion transition that they yeah. did that? Yeah. Did you d- do any updates to the music or just really just remaster everything and send it over? No, I just, just made them uh, new copies of the stuff. I know they did some other stuff uh, in the ride. I don't even know what it was, but I didn't have anything to do with with those gotcha do you remember who, who wrote the lyrics 
I did. You, that was all you? Oh, yeah. It's so funny. So I live in the Atlanta area, and you can pretty much any friend group or anything, Six Flags comes up, people will talk about Monster Mansion, they'll, they'll bring it up, and there's always someone, or if not everyone, who knows those lyrics, at least that, that first hook that comes in. So uh, it, it really is connected with people. Is that something you wrote the whole song with in mind? Oh, sure, sure. Yes. And, you know, I, I wanted it to be something that, that, that it didn't bother them that they remembered. Like people get really mad and it's a small world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Definitely not. Definitely not. It's it's looked at in a positive way. That's basically what a large part of my career has, was that because I did an awful lot of radio and TV commercials and so on. So my I always considered my job was to get into people's heads, either make them feel something, make things feel familiar. Yeah. I was going to ask about your history with that. Is there any work that you've done that, you know, the general public or, you know, theme park fans in general would know? Oh, yeah. It's uh, one of the one of the areas that I did enough work in to become basically the the, the bar. I mean, where you set the bar, people, all the people in the business of doing uh, radio ID packages, IDs and promos and so on, uh, which start with just a little, you know, just the call letters in between tunes. And But I wrote uh, whole song length things. And uh, I did those packages for radio and TV stations all over the country. Like I said, everybody else in the business tried to copy the stuff that I was doing. So it was fun. I, I could do anything I wanted to because whatever I thought of was state of the art. Cool. And again, lyrics had a whole lot to do with it, you know. Yeah, it's a catchy one. You got a gift there, definitely. Thanks. I think there was a couple other questions I had for you. Like I said earlier, it took me by surprise that you were so hands-on with the project. Were you able to visit Six Flags once the ride opened and just hear everything in full operation and see people's reactions and stuff like that? No, I never had the time. Well, I shouldn't say never. There's one we did one in Houston for NASA. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, we actually did go over. They invited us over and we actually did make time to go over for the opening of that that was kind of neat but uh oh yeah and the wax museum in uh buena vista uh you know in, in south of los angeles that was close by we actually drove down and, and heard that after it was installed but i i would love to it but there just wasn't time to at that time to to do it yeah there's one more main question I have here, and you're welcome to add anything you want, because really, if you want to go back into talking about programming the animatronics, I'll sit here all day if you want. I won't take up too much of your time, though. So I'm sure you're aware, somewhat aware, but there was that ride in that building before they made Monster Plantation. There was a ride called Tales of the Oki Finoki. That one had an original soundtrack, too. And out of curiosity, do you know anything about the music about that predecessor ride, Tales of the Oki Finoki? No, it seems to me that somebody mentioned it once, but it didn't really have anything to do with what I was doing. Coincidentally, it has the kind of same rhythm and everything. It's, it's kind of that New Orleans jazz kind of swing to it. Just kind of funny well, they line up a little that's, bit. That's a handy kind of thing to use for this kind of a job. It works and it's got the kind of feel you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly in one with like the monster plantation where once you get into the swamp, it's like I'm, I was basically scoring a horror film, you know. So it's, it's, 
it's real good to, to set up a contrast like that if you've got something that's really up where it's up because then it can be really down where it's down. So yeah, yeah that's a, like probably one of the most iconic parts of the ride because it's bright and colorful and then you turn this corner and it's dark and they're monsters and it's like actually terrifying. Uh, I was knocked out when I saw the you know the basically the storyboards because they that exactly is the, that's the way they drew it out and and, I, and it was just great you know just night and day kind of thing yeah they kind of pull the rug out from under you and your work has something to do with that too because as far as i can tell there's like a timpani rolling and crescendos and big swells and just dissonant oh, yeah. growly music yeah like I said, I'm not going to take up your entire afternoon, but is there anything else you want to add or comment about this? Well, there's one thing that you might, since it wasn't actually in an amusement park and it wasn't in the United States, you might not know about. Did you know about the, uh, well, a couple of things. One was the underwater dragon palace in Beijing. Okay. And it's in a, a lake, which is a, evidently a, a reservoir outside of Beijing. Mm-hmm. So it's like a submarine ride. You know, there are traditional dragons in Chinese folklore, and they all, everybody knows what they look like. So they, they were able to paint them and sculpt them, you know, to, to get all the details. But they had to deal with a couple of guys that came over from China that, that were, that's what they were there for, was to make sure that it looked like they'd always looked. But I was making voices for them. Uh-huh. With, with a synthesizer and I was one of the original Moog synthesizer people and uh, and I realized that I had free reign because I never had voices before so nobody could say that's not what they sounded like <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that was that was a fun one and there was a lot of music involved in that too it was original but I was writing in the, in the style of the Chinese composers early on and then there was another another one one in Japan uh, a display of, of uh, dinosaurs they were all animatronics, dinosaurs. They were huge when I went over. It just knocked me out seeing them standing there, you know, a couple stories tall in the shop. I had to decide what they sounded like when they roared and did whatever they did. And there were family groupings and, and so on. And uh, I actually produced the sounds with the Moog synthesizer. I based them on, since birds are the result, uh, they came from dinosaurs originally. That's what everybody feels that that's that's the direction that it came mm-hmm. so sampling different birds around and then slowing them down three or four octaves to see what they sound like if they were you know <laughs> huge and and so on and that gave me the basis of a lot of sounds which then unduplicated and and recorded whole groups of sounds some of which were just basically uh feeding kind of mutters or some were like the the t-rex of course has got to be attacking and and so on but then a lot of them were were family scenes and and so on and uh that's probably the most difficult one i ever did sounds like steven spielberg could have used your help over on jurassic park well what, what was funny was jurassic park came out about three weeks after our display went on uh-huh. which was a couple of months after i'd finished doing the sounds and when I went, I went to see it specifically to find out what did they do. Some of them uh, I thought was just a cheap way out because they were combinations of existing roars of different existing animals kind of mixed together. Yeah. But some of them were pretty good. And the ones that were good sounded almost exactly like the ones that I made, which <laughs> I thought was really neat. It's validating for sure. Yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your willingness to do this. Oh, sure. Well, it was a pleasure. I'm glad... I'm glad people are interested, and I'm glad it's still going on. That's great. Ready, aim, and fire! Oh, yeah! 
Lucky for you guys, I found this here cannon. Thanks everyone so much for listening. And once again, I'd really love to thank Dick Hamilton for his time and insight and everything he contributed to this interview. So thank you so much for that. I really have so many more questions for him and I wish I dug deeper in that interview, but it's still all great stuff. Anyway, my latest video about the art of theme park music, which by the way, Monster Mansion is mentioned, it's up on the Storybook Amusement YouTube channel right now. So I really appreciate if you guys went and checked that out or add it to your watch later list, but but in any case, thank you everyone so much for listening. Thanks for making it this far into the podcast. I hope you all have a happy new year. Until next time.